Hi listeners and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaforis, and on today's episode, we're talking about ethnicity, culture, and the NDIS. Joining me today to help shed light on this important topic is Sophie Duterte from the Centre for Culture, Ethnicity and Health. Hey Sophie. Hi George. How are you today? Good, thank you. Thanks for joining us. Oh, you're welcome. So, why is it important to support providers and support coordinators in particular to understand culture and ethnicity? I think it's important for everyone because the NDIS is for everyone who's eligible, regardless of their ethnic backgrounds. And we know that at the moment, people of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds are not really engaging with the NDIS. You know, there's in Victoria about 10% of participants are of culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, and that's versus 25% of the general population. So there's definitely an under-representation. So the NDIS need to seem more accessible, to be more accessible for for people, and support providers and support coordinators have a great role to play in making sure the system meets people's needs, even if their needs might be different for those of the general population. And you're currently working on a project in this area, aren't you? Yeah, so we've been uh, funded by the state government to help with the rollout of the NDIS in Victoria, with a focus on culturally and linguistically diverse communities. And we have been doing cultural competence training for the disability sector. And a lot of the information that um, we have imparted in those workshops has been information I've gained from training interpreters. So I've trained more than a thousand interpreters in lots of different languages. And we ask interpreters in your communities, what are the cultural barriers to engaging with the NDIS? And so that's been a very rich conversation that we have then been able to share with the disability sector. It's very important work. Yeah, it's been really interesting. Now, yesterday I had the pleasure of speaking to Julie Durong, whose family is Chinese, about her experience as an NDIS participant. Let's hear some of what she had to say. Hi, George. Thanks for having me. So I myself am from a Chinese background. My parents are Chinese, but I was born in Australia. It's only recently I've reflected on how that's sort of intersected with the Australian culture and, you know, disability amongst all of that. I think it's just been a challenge balancing, you know, traditional views of Asian uh, view of disability in terms of what people are able to do, you know, the stigma behind all of that. And in Australia where, you know, it's a little bit more accepting Um, People are, you know, things like the NDIS are obviously here to support people with disability to be independent, um, make their own choices. Um, And oftentimes I feel that coming from a Chinese background, you know, it's a whole different world where parents and people who are older than you essentially have a say, more of a say in what you can and can't do in your life. So, you know, it's been pretty hard to have those tough discussions with my own parents about where I want to go in my own life. 
and you know what they see I'm able to do or you know they obviously love and care for me but um, being independent is something that is hard for them to grasp. That's really interesting. So are you saying that uh, it was hard for your family to accept that you would want to be independent and that you'd want to access services that will then help you to be independent? Mm. Yeah. And and how, how do you do how do you deal with that? Like, what do you do? What what sort of uh, strategies do you need to um, put into place? Yeah. Well, it's funny. I was having a think um, about how I even began to access supports in the first place, um, and it was actually in the middle of two thousand and sixteen. I randomly received a call from the NDIS um, asking me a bunch of questions about my condition um, and I thought it was just a really bizarre phone call and then all of a sudden I get a letter from the NDIS saying, you know, we're going to come and do a planned meeting with you and I was like, what is going on? Um, luckily, I was in link with some of the organisations you know, disability support organisations and they really helped me prepare in thinking about what I would be needing because at the time I was at university um, and before all of this, I never received any supports. So my parents did everything for me and my family um, and that was something that, you know, that was just a given, um, especially in our culture and I suppose I, we were really just, oh, I was really just forced into having all this. Um, and, you know, it, I literally had my plan. I had funding and it wasn't until six months later that I hired my first support worker. Uh, and that was quite challenging in terms of having that conversation, well, with my parents that somebody is going to be coming into the home. Let's start small. So I think having that conversation about a respectful conversation about what they're okay with or what they're comfortable with and what I'm comfortable with as well. And it was definitely starting small. That's really um, important for people to understand that, that you uh, need to start small, that it can be quite overwhelming for um, people to have support in the home, particularly when their culture um, is effectively um, quite different and says that the family um, is the, is the, has the responsibility to, to take care of the person with disability. Is that right? That's it. That's exactly it. <laughs> okay. And, and how is it now? Like, have they accepted it? Um, has your family embrace your independence are there are there still some challenges it's still a work in progress i mean um i have a team of lovely support workers who do come in and out of the house and you know that was just you know it was a conversation that i had with my family or my parents mainly as well like oh, you know, do you want to meet this person as well? Making sure they're comfortable because these are people coming in and out of my house, our house every day. So it's really 
right now they're accepting of that aspect. But of course, the NDIS has so much more potential in terms of housing and, um, you know, really being able to live independently. Um, in, in my own home, I'm as independent as possible. You know, when I do go to work, when I do go out with friends, um, I'm able to bring someone else and not have to be limited to what my parents are able to do for me at that time. Um, but a whole new conversation and, you know, challenge will be getting them to let me go out into the big wide world, you know, living on my own or living with someone else, um, whatever it may be, uh, you know, for them, it's still a family responsibility. So they've always envisioned that once they're too old, my siblings will then look after me, but you know, it really doesn't have to be like that, especially in Australia and especially with the NDIS. So that's a conversation that I need to tread carefully. Um, yeah, but I think over time they will see, you know, especially seeing other people do it has really eased them. Um, yeah. Okay. So listening to Zoran and, and introducing how culture had played a part in her experience of the NDIS. Is this a common experience for people from culturally diverse backgrounds? Absolutely. I mean, Julie was talking about her experience as a person of, uh, of Chinese ancestry. Every culture is different, but something that uh, to, to different degrees is across all cultures is the shame around having someone with a disability in the family. The shame that the family experiences and the discrimination they might experience from their community. The other thing that's very common is the sense that the person living with a disability is <laughs> maybe a burden or at a minimum, someone who doesn't have great prospects and so someone who has great limitations. So it's not so much about expanding that person's opportunities as it is about making sure they're well, and, but not really about engaging them with the community. And the NDIS is all about engaging with the community. So that's an aspect of the NDIS that um, there's a long way to go for people in different cultures to, to uh, understand that, I think. It's really interesting, particularly those concepts of, of shame and um, being a burden. I mean, these are all things that as, as people with disabilities, in particular as a member of the disability rights movement, I would say, how dare you think that way about me? But it is, can be quite deeply ingrained, can't it? It is a big thing. And I mean, you know, as, as in every culture, including a more Western culture, there's degrees. And some families will be much more um, open to, to taking their child to community events or to engaging their child in opportunities. Some families will have the child at home. Some families, their friends won't know that the child exists. I've come across instances of instances of uh, that. And you also mentioned uh, uh, almost a culture of low expectations yeah. of people with disabilities. I know this, this is quite interesting for me because I always wonder why my mother has this, I'm from a Greek background, and my mom has this habit of telling 
random strangers around the doctor. <laughs> and I might remember just met this person that needs to tell them this. But I think it does reflect um, that she was, I guess, her culture was that disabled people don't really amount to much. And she wants to say, well, he's a doctor. Mm. And uh, yeah, and someone, an interpreter the other day was telling me a story that really stayed with me. Um, he was from an East African community and he was saying, they had a mum in a planning meeting and it had taken a lot of work for the mum to come with her daughter to accept that, you know, the daughter had a disability and the daughter was a child. And in the meeting she was saying, but why are you spending that money on my daughter? Why are you offering me this money? Because my daughter's never going to get better. And so she was actually saying, save your money, you know, we've we're very grateful that we have a life in Australia, but don't waste your money on my daughter. So there was really no understanding that I think her daughter had autism and that the daughter could, she'd always have autism, but she could really benefit from support and engaging with the community and learning. So um, that really stayed with me because I think that's coming from a mom where, as Julie said, it comes from a place of love and care, but no understanding that there are opportunities for people with disabilities. And that would be very hard for the daughter to hear that. Yeah. And, and how does that then affect the daughter and her view of herself and her ability to benefit from the NDIS? Yeah. That would be quite, quite profound. And, and Julie talked quite a lot about the importance of family um, and, and how yeah, we know that with the NDIS, the, the focus is on the individual, and that can be challenging when your family is effectively um, thinks that it's their job to take care of you. Is that a common thing? To Absolutely. I think you're, you're talking about collectivist cultures where decisions are not made individually. And the NDIS, which um, with its model on focusing on the individual, individual empowerment, choice and control, those are all concepts that culturally can be really difficult to accept. Uh, I think Julie spoke very eloquently about her experience and her family, and she's you know extremely articulate and, and still feels that she's not at a point where she can talk to her parents about moving out, for instance. And we've certainly had uh, feedback that some families can feel really criticized by the NDIS because they've been looking after someone 24-7 and suddenly there's a discussion about this person making their own decisions. And that's something that they find they can really take as a criticism. We had uh, actually Chinese interpreters were saying that some adults living with a disability might be reluctant to embrace the opportunities of the NDIS for fear of upsetting their parents and offending their parents and being alienated from their community. So I think yeah, the role of family and the way the NDIS focuses on the person rather than the family's wishes is something that um, planners, local area coordinators, support coordinators really need to take into account in their approach and they really need to approach things slowly and with great sensitivity around that. That's very important, but it's easier said than done, isn't it? It's easier said than done because you're funded to uh, provide a service to a person and suddenly you have all this 
quite a lot of people that you need to think about and, and manage. I mean, how do you do that in a way where you don't end up a, being overwhelmed yeah. and B, taking over because you don't want to do that either. No, and I think um, Julie talked about going slowly and let's start small and it certainly is, um, you know, it's the right approach really because it's, it's challenging to have someone in your house who seems to be making decisions and decisions that lead to your child being taken away from you or being um, or, or that feeling that they're taken away from you or or suddenly having control over finances because something that might happen in families is they've already always controlled the money that was for the person with a disability in ways that in a western framework you call that is financial abuse but that might be a totally accepted practice uh, in the family so you've got to be very sensitive of that and how to not be overwhelmed well i don't know that there's a way to not be overwhelmed i think it might be very overwhelming as well, a... I, I have an idea yeah. come to the training session and come to the training sessions that we run with the summer foundation as part of your upskill project yeah absolutely but i think support coordinators who themselves are from the same cultural backgrounds uh, i think that's a really great step because they would have an awareness and the family might be more open to receiving their advice as well because they'll assume a cultural understanding. How about gender? Does gender play a role? So whether someone's male or female? I think it really depends. It depends on the family. It depends on the skills of the person. Yeah. I think, you know, it really, um, it's very much a case-by-case -case basis. On that topic of case-by-case, -case, um, I think that uh, one of the dangers is that we stereotype people and we say, oh, they're Chinese, you know, when you work with Chinese people, do this or, yeah. It, I mean, we know that culture is, can be quite dynamic, um, but how do you avoid stereotyping and yet also and we, we're all um, guilty of this. I, I'm definitely guilty of this. And I think stereotypes exist for, for a purpose. I think sometimes you can make a general assumption that is likely to be correct as long as you are open to the fact that it might not be. You know, so you might assume that because a family is Muslim, if it's their daughter who has a disability, a female carer will be more welcome. That's, a, I think, a very valid assumption. Be open to the fact that that might not be the case for that particular family, you know? And, like, I've worked with quite a lot of Syrian um, people in the past couple of years, and you'll have people who are extremely educated, extremely worldly, speak another two or three languages. I've studied in Paris. And then you'll have people who come from a village, have lived on a farm all their life, have very little education. Now, the difference between those two, let's say, two families in terms of understandings around disability and perceptions and openness to services is as if they came from two different sides of the planet. You know, it's like, it's not the culture really that in that instance that is the strongest, it's the class and the education. So I agree, we, we really shouldn't assume that someone who walks through the door who is Chinese or Somali or Russian um, will be exactly like the same Chinese or Somali or Russian person we worked with. But be aware of some, some common issues that can arise at the same time. Yeah. I think that's I, yeah. important. Yeah. yeah. And ask. 
if you answer ask. Look, it's the, it's the key to everything. You know, when, when we train in cultural competence, we always say we are not going to tell you how to work with this specific community, but, but that's be what people want. So people want that. People want to. People want easy answers. They don't. They don't like complexity. But this is complex. It's very complex, and I don't know every culture in the world. So, I, and I don't know every person from every culture in the world. So, I can't tell you how to work with them. But it's about being open-minded, being open to the fact we make mistakes. And really, if you apologize, people are generally very forgiving. And being open to our own ignorance and just asking questions, to not come there with our knowledge and our jargon and our idea that the NDIS is going to be great. And, you know, it's do it slowly and be open to the fact you might have to explain things and have things explained to you as well. What other barriers, what kind of other barriers do you find? Uh, people from diverse backgrounds can experience with the NDIS? So with the NDIS, there's, well, one that's often mentioned to me is the fact that it's called NDIS, which, you know, if you talk about Medicare, the name says what it does. NDIS, the name doesn't say what it does. So that's something that's been mentioned to me a lot, that people don't quite know what it is because it's an acronym. Then when you unfold the acronym, it's got the word insurance in it. So people think you're going to have to pay a premium or they think it's a marketing person who's calling them, trying to sell them insurance. So there's, you know, that issue at the beginning. Culturally, it's more about if you experience shame about having a child with a disability, you're not going to want visibility. And if you access services, you're going to be visible. And so it's can be easier to hide the person at home than to actually take the risk to be seen by the community. And you know, we are here sitting in Box Hill, very Chinese community. If you go to a service, there will be other people, other Chinese people who might see you. And so there's a risk associated with that that stops people from accessing services. And another reason I can think of is that many people, particularly if they come from refugee producing countries, so if they come from, you know, I don't know, Syria, Iraq, countries in East Africa, uh, might come from countries where there is no such thing that services for people with a disability. And there is no such thing as a benevolent government that looks after your welfare. So it's not just about learning about the NDIS, it's about learning about a service system that is there to support you, that you won't have to pay for, and that is, you know, wanting to provide help and support, not punishment. So it's a whole concept about what government does and what services do that can also be something to learn. So people can be afraid of the NDIS country. They can think, well, what, what, what's the catch? Yeah, they can think there is a catch. They can find it very hard to understand. They can find it threatening because of the emphasis on the person rather than the family. And also for people who have small children who might have had experiences in their community with child protection, they might be very nervous about their child being taken away from them and, you know, being judged as bad parents. And so this, it's, like you said before, it's really complex. There's so many layers to everything. Thank God for the training. Mm -hmm. um, so, particular yes, things that people need to understand. Um, for example, are there 
eller som tips och tips för er kan Yeah, I think, um, as Julie said, start small, go slowly, take the time as a support coordinator. And I know there's constraints around how many hours they have. And, you know, I'm aware of all that. But uh, a big thing, because it's a big thing for me, because I'm a plain language person, is don't use jargon. You can use jargon with your manager in the office, but when you're working with a family, don't say psychosocial use another word. Don't say portal. Don't call my place a portal. It's an online account. You know, just don't, don't use the jargon because even if you have an interpreter, if the interpreter doesn't understand the jargon, they won't be able to interpret it. So the responsibility is actually on you to speak in plain English, to be understood by the family and by the interpreter. So that, that would be a really big thing and that's something I do a lot with interpreters when I train them about using simple words instead of the, the complex terminology but and also making sure that people understand their plan because I think a lot of the time and I'm sure that's not just in culturally and linguistically diverse communities people might not understand their plan and that make sure they understand their plan and they understand the services People come from countries where there's no such thing as an occupational therapist, a speech therapist. They might have the best services in their plan and have no idea where they are. So really taking the time to go through it with them. It's part of the uh, education process yeah. uh, that, that you need to support people to uh, learn a whole new language to some extent. Because um, I sometimes think that the NDS is developing its own language, really. But um, don't assume that people know what all these words mean. Oh, absolutely. You know, I've got, I've done a glossary at work, and you know, it's like core support, capacity building support, capital support, and it's just self-management and plan management. It's taken me ages to understand all those things. So, and my English is okay, you know, so it's, um, yeah, there's very much a whole new vocabulary around it. And I think, I mean, I, I, what, I'm, what I'm being told is the first year is the hardest with a plan but it's worth putting the effort because then after that people become more accustomed to the language and to the services and you really reap the benefits of it. And, you know, I, I want the NDIS to work for everyone and to, to really give people choices they haven't had before. And if that means a bit more investment at the beginning, that's worth it. Just to end, do you have any uh, examples of people that you've worked with who have had some great outcomes that you've seen, um, but they've started off with a lot of barriers and problems and, and with the right support coordinator they've been able to turn it around? Absolutely, and an example that's very close to me because they are friends of mine and uh, it's a family that is Arabic speaking, they don't speak English, and they have a daughter who's an adult daughter we are living with a a range of disabilities and in their first year they had a plan that was in English that hadn't been translated and 
they didn't have a support coordinator, even though they should have had one. And so they completely underspent their plan, massively underspent their plan. And so I went to the review meeting with them, explained what had been happening, and their plan was renewed in its integrality. So every service and all the funding. And they've now got a support coordinator that they found themselves, who is fantastic, knows more than I do about the NDIS, speaks their language, completely understands the plan, is always telling me to go slowly because I just want everything to happen now and that's not going to work. And so they're really going to be able to get the services. And I can see the daughter is just blossoming, you know, because of the opportunities she has to do things on her own. And so I think by the end of year two, it will make a massive difference to their life. But I really, it's thanks to their support coordinator that they have now. It's a great story. Yeah. Thanks for sharing it, and thanks for joining us on the show. Yeah, it's fantastic, and they're friends of mine, so I'm very happy to see you know them, to see how well it's working for them. Wonderful. Thanks for joining us, Sophie. You're welcome. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. Check out our Facebook page for all previous podcasts and transcripts. We really do love hearing from you, so please leave your comments and we'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes. Until next time, stay well and reasonable.